uh, we've been we've been looking at this the series of how the gospel changes everything, and this is uh, week eight, and and specifically this week we're going to be focusing in on the church, and so this is true of a, of a broader sense of of the church, um, universal church or the church Catholic, whatever however you want to describe that as, of all churches, yes, uh, but yet we want to specifically focus on on our church and our local congregation. And so if you're visiting or you're out of town or whatever, hopefully this will, this will be applicable. Uh, it should be. Um, you know, we're going to read the scriptures and we're going to talk about uh, how Jesus would like us to live uh, in this world. And, and so that's where we're going to be. So I do have a question, uh, just kind of start us off and get us thinking. Uh, have you ever had someone do, do some work that you were supposed to do, uh, if that makes sense. Like you, you said you were going to do something and then you show up. Uh, I actually did this to Ben Jones today. Uh, he got here nice and early to help me set up, but we're getting used to it again. And so everything was all set up by the time he even got here. So he's like, oh, I got here early for nothing. Um, right. Uh, but then he went and got coffee. So it worked out. But, but I know this happens, right? I know it works out. I know my wife, she's sitting here, right? But it happens to her a lot with her, her job where somebody say, hey, can you, Angela, you think you can help me out with this thing? But then on their own time, they're like, oh, I figured it out. And then they do it on their own. And then she gets back and like, hey, I did this thing. And they're like, oh yeah, no, I already did that thing, right? <laughs> Anyone ever, ever been there in those situations? Maybe it was a class project or a group project. Um, I remember feeling that way in college and high school uh, when you're assigned a book to read and then you realize that someone actually already read it and then wrote a little book, you know, Cliff Notes or Spark Notes. And it's like, oh, look, someone already else already did the work. Why would I ever have to read the whole book uh, as a, in its entirety? I remember uh, my sophomore year of high school was right. We were reading The Count of Monte Cristo and the movie had just come out. Um, and it wasn't until I bombed my first test that I realized, wow, the movie's very different from, from the book. So I couldn't just, uh, you know, do, do that. Uh, it, the book is, fan- it's very dark, very dark, way darker than the movie. Um, uh, I, so I, I, tell, I say all that just to, there was a couple years ago, eight, nine years ago, uh, I went up to a cabin, kind of a, a little retreat, and I wanted to study the church. I was just getting the itch and this bug to want to plant a church, to start a new church. And so I went up there with a couple of my friends and, and we just uh, stayed in this little cabin and we, and we worked out a kind of a statement of faith and, and we wrote this a huge paper on what is, what is the church. And, and we didn't have internet or anything like that up at this cabin, which wouldn't really have mattered. We, we wanted to do that. But then, then you kind of get home and now I've been in, you know, in the ministry and I've been doing this thing for a while now. And it's like, I didn't have to reinvent the wheel, right? Like the, someone else already has described what the church should be. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Not that to say that was a waste of time up at the cabin. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of work that's been done. And so today I'm just going to have, it's a simple outline, kind of three points and, and a lot of little sub points underneath that. And every single sub point could easily, easily be an entire sermon, but we're not going to do that, uh, obviously. So this week's sermon is, What is the Church? We're going to kind of take two weeks of this series of, of the Gospel Changes Everything and look at what is the church, and then and next week specifically, a little bit more boots on the ground, a little bit more uh, relevance uh, specifically for us in, in Lower Town and what that looks like. And so uh, I just want to define it. And I, and I have some quotes that were from this paper that I wrote. And then, and again, I, I don't like doing this. I'm not doing this to puff myself up, trust me. But, but kind of quoting uh, ourselves on this paper that I wrote, like, you know, 10 years ago on the definition of the church. And it's like, there's nothing new here, right? There's nothing new when it comes to these definitions. And yet I think they can be helpful. But yet there's so much more to church than just some, some straight up definitions. And so Martin Luther, back in the 
late 1500s said this, the church was born by the word of promise through faith and by the same word is nourished and preserved. We point this out a lot here at Hope Lower Town and specifically this building, First Baptist Church, that the big stained glass window up on the top, higher than anything else. And another symbolism within these stained glass windows and, and even the cross and the crown there uh, is, is the scriptures. That the scriptures are our highest authority. And, and that's what Luther is saying here. Uh, that is to say, it is the promises of God that make the church and not the church that make the promises of God. For the word of God is incomparably superior to the church. And in the word, the church, and in this word, which is also Christ, but also his written word, the church being a creature that we were created, the church has been created from God, has nothing to decree, ordain, or make, but only to be decreed, ordained, and made for who begets his own parent. He said all everything that we have ever done that we want to strive to do as a church comes from Scripture. Another gentleman, Henry Barrow, says this, the church, uh, as it is universally understood, containeth, you know he's old English when he uses the F in all these words, containeth in it all the elect of God that have been, are, or shall be. But being considered more particularly as it is seen in the present world, it consisteth of a company of fellowship and faithful and holy people gathered together in the name of Christ Jesus, their only king, priest, and prophet, worshiping him aright, being peaceably and quietly governed uh, by his officers and laws, keeping the unity of the faith and the bond of peace and love unfeigned. Okay, so this, that's just the definition and the ones that, that we came up with. The purpose of the church is for those who have been called by God and, and have re- repented of their sins, is that Jesus as their Savior through faith alone and are now living stones being built up into one body for the equipping of the ministry and the edifying of the saints through the teaching. It's one of my favorite verses on the church. Is just being built up uh, as a body for the equipping of the saints. And this is something I think a lot of times we, we maybe think, oh, that's the, that's the pastor's job, that's the elder's jobs uh, to be able to, to go into the community, to witness, to share the gospel. And I, my job as your pastor is to simply equip you for those things. Uh, that, that's what it is. It doesn't mean I, I don't do that, but I do those things because I'm a Christian, not because I'm a pastor. Uh, let's see, both Old and New Testaments for the purpose of uh, all the purpose of fulfilling the great gospel commission uh, back, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't write anything uh, Christian without using the word gospel. So I had, instead of the, just the gospel commission or the, or the great commission, I had to put great gospel commission there. Making disciples and obeying all that Christ has commanded, creating a global community centered on Christ and participating in local gatherings, uh, fulfilling the ultimate purpose of glorifying God for the joy of all people. All right, so that was, that was what was running. Like, hey, there, there we go. That's the church. Bada bing, bada boom, we're done. We're out of here, right? But it's not that simple. And as we look at different churches even around us, even just right here, even, even across the street, there are, there are different ways in which people uh, go about how they do church. Uh, even within this building, we're one of four congregations that use this space. Not currently, we're the only ones that are meeting right now. But um, the, the other three, though, they, they have a different vision. Uh, worship the same Savior, uh, but just different different uh, philosophy of ministry. They have a different way of doing that. And so one, one thing that has uh, really inspired us, I know it's really hard to read, if, if not impossible to read, but uh, Tim Keller, he's a pastor out in New York City, a Redeemer Church, I think is the name of it. Um, he's in New York, and, and he wrote this book called Total Church. And this has been very transformational for me. Uh, for our church in general as Hope Community Church. 
of how he kind of breaks down these quadrants, four quadrants of the church. And, I, and I'm just going to spend a little bit of time uh, walking through some of these. And the whole point, the name of the book is called Centered Church, okay? And if, you, if, if I explained this well, then you basically, basically read the book. This is really what the whole book is about, is this, this graph. I was saying, okay, there are some good things about all four of these quadrants, but how do we narrow it in? How do we, how do we get it into the middle? And how do we take a little bit of all of these and not stray so far to the left or the right or the top or the bottom? And so there are these different aspects. The top, we'll just start in the top right. And this is relevance. This is a church that just says, we want to be seeker sensitive. Uh, we want to be very relevant, right? Uh, we want to do everything we can to get as many people into the door as possible. And sometimes we might even just give a good motivational speech uh, because we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to actually open the Bible and say, that's our, that's our highest authority. That could be offensive to some people. And, and as you move down the track and they just get further away, further away from being centered on, on Christ and they end up just being people pleasers. It just ends up being, becoming a, a nice fancy, uh, you know, supper club or whatever you want to call it, right? Where people just gather together with a similar interest in the sense that they're, they're Christian. Where we, when yet, well, let, let me read some stats here. This is, um, uh, this comes from the Center Church book. Uh, he said he was quoting a poll that from 1970 to 1985, which I know is before the majority of us were even born, um, that 18 to 29 year olds, which is by far the majority of us in this room, I'm not in that category. Um, but from 18 to 29 year olds, again, from 1970 to, to 1985, that it actually, there, that population grew in the church. Uh, so it went from uh, 19% to 26%. So it grew by 7 8% of the, that age demographic actually grew in the church. And those that associated with, with a nun, N-O-N-E, nun, uh, that I don't believe in any higher power, I don't believe in any God, uh, atheist, but even, even more broad than that, they would just, that actually decreased. So that went from, from 13% of the population down to 11%. Well, up until 2008, 2010, kind of right when this book came out, um, that actually completely shifted. That that 26% of young people from the ages 19 to or 18 to 29 dropped down to 15%. So it lost 11% in that, uh, and then the the nuns grew from 11% up to 30%. So that's a that's a massive cultural shift as far as young people attending a church. And so what churches then would do is they would go out and do the new new cool thing. How do we get more people in the church? Let's do, uh, well, whatever. I'm not going to start, you know, what, what, churches do a lot of things, right? And it's not to say that we don't want to do that. We want to be centered. We want to be culturally relevant. I, you know, I, I quoted Indiana Jones, right? That's, that's uh, culturally relevant, although that movie probably came out before I was born too. Um, but yet, you know, we play lo-fi music, right? For all you cool cats and kittens. Uh, that was too that was two references in one. Did you get it? All right. I'm relevant. I'm hip. Um, thank you. Uh, my kids were actually, yesterday they were a lion and a tiger, and Angela kept saying she was going to dress up like Carol Baskin, but we, we never did that. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, right. Okay. So that's one thing. Now, one verb that we could use for that, 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 that quadrant would just be adapt. That these churches just want to adapt. And is there, is there anything wrong with that? No. But when we stray too far and all we want to do is just scratch people's ears and just say, hey, I want to say what you want to hear, that's not good. All right? So we want to stay on that center. And the center there just says common good, right? That there's things about culture that we can agree on. So what is that common good that we should focus on, that we should enjoy about our culture and our community? Uh, just moving down there, the bottom right, 
This is the transformationalist. Uh, this is going to be someone who says, hey, we can actually change the world. That if we just, if more Christians got involved in politics, if, if more Christians got involved in education reform, if more Christians got involved in the police force, whatever it may be, this, we could, we could fix this. We could transform culture if there was just enough of us in here. Uh, James Hunter, he wrote a book called How to Change the World. I've quoted him before in this series. He actually calls uh, this, it's this idea called symbolic capitalism, or sorry, symbolic capital, not capitalism, symbolic capital. And his whole point is, is this, that within our society, 30% of, of our population would associate to be an evangelical Christian. So even though that's a large portion of it, the people who are in positions, let's say uh, there, there's a, right, uh, there'd be someone who's different. If, if someone's teaching a technology class at Harvard, they're going to have more of an influence than, uh, you know, than I would if I was teaching a, a technology class over at Metro State, there's nothing wrong with Metro State. And yet, but the, the influence that we have in our spheres are far less than 30%, if that makes sense. And so he's saying, even though it may seem like we have a lot of influence, this is hard. It's a hard, it's a hard uh, community to get into. Um, and so we, the influence that we have is much, much lower. Should we try to influence? Yes, of course we should. Or we should be in our communities. We should get involved in different ways and, and avenues. And as, as people, right, I'm, I'm a professional Christian. I work full-time as a, as a pastor, right? And all of you, everyone else in here doesn't do that. And so you're working in communities and you act and you live as a Christian and you let your, your biblical uh, understanding and biblical worldview influence how it is you work and, and principles that you work toward. That's a good thing. But if our end goal is simply just to take over the world by being people of influence and power and position, again, that's not the role of the church. I think we're, we're missing that. So again, that centerpiece there is just distinctive worldview of having a biblical worldview within my sphere of influence, whatever that may be. Uh, the bottom left, if we continue, oh, the, the word, the, maybe the verb there that we would have is reclaim. So top right, adapt. Bottom right, reclaim. Moving to the left, this is going to be counterculturalist. Uh, these are going to be people who actually remove themselves from the community. Uh, this would be on there, you can, if you can read it, like the Amish, if we can think of the Amish. Uh, that's what they would do. They've got good Christian values, but then they're going to say, uh, yep, not for me. Uh, we're going to completely remove ourselves from this society. Uh, I grew up as a, as a very conservative fundamentalist, and that's how it was. We, we wanted nothing to do with the world. The world was evil, and so we stay in here. And so kind of maybe the, the word would just be resist. Uh, I remember for my, the short time that I was at, well, a short time, it was a year and a half when I was a student at Bob Jones University in South Carolina. Um, this is always kind of a funny thing, but it's true that the, the barbed wire fences around campus didn't actually lean out to keep the evil from getting in. They leaned in to keep us from getting out. All right. That's this. That's resistance from the culture. And now, but yet, what's the whole point? Their whole idea is they want to be holy. They want to be separate. They want to be set apart. But is there a way in which we can honor God and still love our neighbors without completely removing ourselves from that? One illustration that I always tell when I talk about this particular idea of resisting is, and I share this a lot, so forgive me if I've shared it from the pulpit before, but uh, I share it every year in a class I teach. And this idea, when I was growing up, there was this illustration that was given about uh, a wealthy individual who had a daughter, and it's, this is fake. This is a fake story, just I think. Maybe this has happened some some point. I doubt it. But he's trying to hire a chauffeur, 
And so he, he, he gets three, three, three individuals to, to drive a limousine, but he has this test. He takes them out to a, a mountain road and it's got a, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a cliff, but on the, on that edge of that road, there's a, there's a guardrail. And so he gets these three people and he says, okay, I want, I want you to get a drive as close as you can to that, the edge of that cliff without, without going off. And so the first guy gets in the car and he drives it and he did a really good job. He gets just within inches, inches of that fence. And he, and he gets really close, but he doesn't touch it. And the next guy is going, I don't know how in the world I can do any better than that. So he decides, I'm just going to just drag the car along that guardrail. I'm not going to go over, but you can't get any closer than that. So he just drags on the guardrail. Well, the third person gets in it and says, okay, this guy wants me to drive his daughter I'm going to be as safe as I possibly can. And so instead of dragging it along the, the fence line that could potentially go over, he drags it on the inside against the inside of the mountain. And the story that was told that way as growing up was maybe it's okay to do certain things. Okay, for me, it was like, maybe it's okay to go to a movie theater. Uh, maybe it's okay to, to listen to the Beatles. But why would you even take a chance with that? Right, and I, I know those are sound extreme, but those are true examples. Okay, uh, I, I was told I was unfit for ministry because I, in eighth grade I went to a movie theater and saw Mission Impossible two. Uh, in case you're wondering, the whole idea was let's let's not. Now, like Paul always says, "Is how are you a Christian?" Right? Like, it's so, so, how, how did you make right? The idea though was why why even flirt with it? Let's be as safe as possible. Let's be as far removed from that as possible. And every year when I teach this, that's not how our God operates. That he is a shepherd guide. He lets us into a green field and a green pasture. He sets up fences, but he doesn't care how close you get to a fence or not. He just wants you to be free in that. He doesn't care what blade of grass you munch on. He says, be free, man, within my rules, because I've set these rules up for a purpose. So that one, maybe the, the verb there would be resist. So adapt, reclaim, resist. And the other top left one, we, we looked at this a lot a couple of weeks ago, so I don't want to spend a lot of time here. This is abstain. Uh, these are the two kingdoms. And by two kingdoms, there's just this idea that there is the church and then there is this common kingdom, which is just the world. It's secular. And so the church has nothing to do with that. Now we take care of our own. We preach the gospel, yes, but we have no over interaction with that. It doesn't matter how we vote. Uh, my vote as a Christian doesn't matter. Uh, we talked about how this was a huge rise within uh, Nazi Germany uh, because this was a Lutheran way of looking at it. And I love Martin Luther, uh, and yet this was, this was bad. It's bad theology. And yet we can look at all those, right? Humble excellence of just let's study our theology, yes. Let's look at church as a countercultural, uh, as church as countercultural, as, as seeking the common good and then having a distinctive worldview. Those are good. So how is it that we then focus on that center of that church? And so I just want to, for the remainder of our time, walk through, uh, it's a definition by a gentleman named Ed Stetzer, a uh, uh, brilliant, brilliant guy and a uh, uh, great man. And he has written a lot of books and a lot of um, statistics. He just does a lot of work when it comes within working across denominations. And, and this was his definition of the church and what the church should be at least now. And so uh, he just says the church is, should be biblically faithful, culturally relevant, and countercultural communities. All right. So all I want to do is I just want to walk through those three main points. And again, I've got some sub points underneath those. And so all I want to do is just start off with this idea of biblically faithful. And again, I, I'm hoping, right? If you've been attending Lower Town for a while, that I'm hoping there's nothing I'm going to say here today that's like, wow, I've never heard that before. This changed my life. 
Because I'm hoping that we talk about these things week in and week out. Maybe I don't verbalize, this is why we do church this way, but I'm hoping that these are just like, oh yeah, this, this, this is us. I'm hoping that we're biblically faithful. And so looking at scripture, and I'm not gonna turn to all these different verses, but you can look those up on your own time if you'd like, but just wanted to have some proof texts for these uh, points. And this is simply biblically faithful. How do we as a church, how are we biblically faithful to the scripture? Well, it says we are, we are to do this as God's chosen people. We just went through last year while walking through 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that God has chosen us to be his church. And so we do that. We are God's chosen people. And then also as the, as the temple of God. And there's a lot of language and, and, and meaning behind that idea of temple. Um, you maybe maybe have heard uh, that right. My my body is the temple of God, right? Clearly, my body is a temple, um, right? But no, <laughs> all jokes aside, I'm saying yes, that's true on an individual level. But it's when we when we read passages in the scripture that talk about the temple and our body being the temple, it's a corporate thing. This is a church-wide uh, thing that we should be looking at the temple of God. And so, I just want to zoom in here on Ephesians chapter two, nineteen through twenty-two. The Apostle Paul says this, so you are no longer strangers and aliens. And if you, if, if, if you were here when you were going through 1 Peter, Peter says the exact opposite. He's like, you are aliens, you are strangers, you are foreigners, but we're foreigners in this world. And what Paul is doing specifically is saying, you Gentiles, you non-ethnic Jews, you're no longer outsiders, you're now into this thing with us. The wall of hostility that was between Jew and Gentile has been broken down and we have been reconciled to one another in Christ. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And this is actually very culturally relevant as well, that Caesar was viewed as this father, as someone that was building this community, this house. It was the same kind of language. And now Paul and Peter use that same language. We're built into this, this temple. And temple is all over the place in scripture. But even going back to the creation story, as God inaugurates this, this temple that he's gonna dwell in, and he, he makes this beautiful earth and he makes the pinnacle of his creation, human beings. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dwell with you. I'm going to walk with you. That's what it means to tabernacle. Tabernacle means I'm going to dwell with you. And this happens throughout the Old Testament as they actually build what was this big tent, this traveling tabernacle that, that God would dwell in until Jesus shows up. And then the word there is he tabernacled among them, right? Emmanuel, God with us. And then as he leaves, he sends us the spirit and the spirit now dwells in us. He says this, in him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. And someday, someday God will make all things new and he will dwell with us physically again. This is what, it's what we're being built up into, this temple that united in our vision. As a body of Christ, we could spend a lot of time talking about the body of Christ, but I know um, just this morning I was praying with some people uh, in the back of the church. I'm just, I'm so thankful for, for all of you. I'm so thankful for um, the people that, that have been brought together uh, in this church and, and that you are family. I know I've used this illustration before, but Olive Garden, it's gotta be one of the cheesiest catchphrases, right? When you're here, you're family. Um, and it's, it's, it's cheesy because it means when I'm not there, I'm not family, so I'm confused. And then when I do show up, because I know if I show up for Thanksgiving and my mom cooks a meal for me and then I just sit there and watch the Lions lose for Thanksgiving, 
um, and I don't help do the dishes, I'm getting kicked out, right? I mean, like, no, I got to I gotta do something, right? And I appreciate that about you, that when I say, hey, we need, we need help with this thing, there's always people that step up. And so I thank you for that. that we, I do think that we are a family and, uh, and really I'm appreciative. Uh, with Christ as the head, as the foundation, even just read that Ephesians passage, looking at that, as a pillar of truth. Uh, some translations will use that phrase buttress, right? But you'll just look at the uh, architecture in here of just, these are buttresses, right? Um, remember the, the old Gothic, the flying buttresses, you know, in Notre Dame and all, well, rest in peace, uh, other, other cathedrals maybe, um, right? With these beautiful, right? They, they support it. And he's saying that we, the church, is the pillar of truth. It, it supports everything, even within our community. The community might be falling apart around us. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to go into the world and we're saying, Jesus is the hope of the world. The gospel is still the answer. And yes, the gospel transforms me internally, but then it motivates me to go do something about it, which we've been talking about. And this whole idea of the gospel changes everything. We're also heirs of God. It's one of those are some, these are some of my favorite verses of just, looking at God as our father and that someday he's going to have this huge banquet feast and we're going to be seated at the table. That we're not going to be servants somewhere. We're going to be seated at the table as heirs, as sons and daughters of God. Just a, a, a really remarkable thought. The next aspect is just culturally relevant. Sometimes uh, Ed Stetzer will use this idea of culturally appropriate that what is it about culture that we can accept? What do we need to reject? What do we need to reform? What do we need to, all these different aspects, right? So, so how, how are we culturally relevant? I have a quote here from, from Tim Keller. He says this, all human activity and production are done for some end with some vision on the basis of some understanding of ultimate re, uh, reality and the meaning of life. And this understanding will affect how the activity and production are carried on, carried out. Therefore, cultural production is something Christians should do, right? He's not saying just be completely removed and abstain. It's something we should do, and they should do it in a way that accords to the glory of God. In other words, they should fully engage culture. Ed Stetzer says this on one of his websites. He says, the gospel is always a stumbling block. That is one thing, right? It, wherever you're at in your walk and your faith, for me to stand up and say, Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the only way of salvation. It's a stumbling block. That's very offensive to some people. And yet I believe with all of my being that that is the only way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. That's a stumbling block. He says, but the fact that so many people reject the gospel before they get to the gospel is a painful reality. In our well-meaning bid to make the Bible and God relevant, we often marginalize ourselves from the very culture we seek to reach. I think back to my, my day in college, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun. I, I really am thankful for my upbringing and, and, and learning the gospel at a very young age. Um, but we, we stuck out like a sore thumb. Right. And as Angela and I would walk down to get some ice cream, you know, in our in our town, you know, and she's got a skirt down to her ankles and I'm wearing khakis and a tie, you know, and I'm 19. Yeah, people people recognized us real quick. Right. Like, oh, they're one of those people. Right. How do we be culturally relevant? Right. How, How do we not stick out like a sore thumb and yet at the same time stick out like a sore thumb? 
That's the whole argument. That's the whole idea. How do we, how do, we do this? There's a statistic, and I don't remember where, where I read this. Maybe it was Ed a long time ago, but that usually people, when they visit a church, they've already made up their mind if they're ever going to come back within the first five minutes. So before, you know, as a pastor, before I even get up on stage, people are going, eh, I'm not liking the vibe here, right? Eh, that guy, Zach, yeah, he was all right, but it could have been better, right? That's not true. Zach is amazing. Right? That's, just, that's, just, that's just what happens. And so now the gospel becomes irrelevant before we even get to share the gospel because we're just weird or whatever, fill in the blank. Um, it says the Bible and God are relevant in this culture in every, and in every other culture. Uh, he and his gospel are relevant always, period. We are the roadblocks to relevancy, not, not the Bible. We live in a way that makes God seem irrelevant, but he is not to blame. I hope that, hope that sticks. Another aspect, uh, where we, as we look at just some passages here, culturally relevant or appropriate, the Apostle Paul talks about this, that he becomes all things to all people, right? To the, to the Greeks, I become, a, I become a Greek. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To the, to the, to the intelligent, right? I'm speaking like that. I'm, I'm doing everything I can. But why? Just to fit in? Just to be culturally relevant? No, he says, in order that I might win them that I can hang out with people that might not be in my circles or in my, my friend groups, but I do so in order that I might win them, that we are a witness to the world and salt and light to it, uh, that we are a witness to the world through evangelism. Recently, just this past week, I, I got involved with a, a group right here at Creator Space, um, just called the Thriving Communities Cohort, and uh, was invited to, to be there. And as everyone is sharing their idea of how we can fix certain things, um, I get to unashamedly say, Jesus is the hope of the world, that the gospel is the answer. And yet the church has been preaching the gospel for thousands of years, but we've gotten a lot of things wrong. So how can we move forward with gospel lenses and trying to help people um, specifically in this neighborhood? Witness to the world through uh, works of service. We looked at this in the, from, from Peter as well of looking at how we do this. But how do we do it? I want to just look again at Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk worthy in a manner of the gospel that you have been called with all what humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the saints of the spirit uh, in the bond of peace. There is one body and there is one spirit. You hear in all the ones, just as, as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We use this language at hope that we talk about how matter and manner matter. Now we can get up and we can, we can preach what the Bible says and we can scream it from the top of our lungs. But if we do so in a way that is not loving and humble, people are going to walk away and they're going to walk away from the gospel again, like Ed said, before they even have a chance to hear the gospel. That the content that we teach and we preach are very important, but just as equally as important, according to the apostle Paul, is how we deliver those messages. That the matter and the manner matter. The third and last aspect of this outline is just countercultural communities. So what is it? How do we engage culture 
appropriately, relevantly, and at the same time said, I want to be separate. I want to be, I want to be holy. I want to pursue justice and righteousness, not just beyond these walls, but in my own heart, in my own life. That I want to be killing sin for the glory of God. Some verses and things that I want to look at here is just leave all and follow Jesus. And I have another parable of the rich young ruler. There's a a man who's very wealthy and he comes to Jesus and just point blank asks, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? And he says, well, obey the commandments. And he's like, I've done that. And I don't think he's lying there. I really genuinely think this, this, this rich young ruler, this individual has said, I've done this. I've, I've obeyed the commandments. So, so that's it. And then Jesus says, you lack this one thing. And again, I've, and I always share this before, either Jesus is bad at math, right? Or he's trying to make a point because he says, you lack one thing. He says, I want you to sell everything you have. I want you to give it to the poor and I want you to follow me. Well, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that this rich young ruler is lacking? He's lacking Jesus, that his possessions were so important to him that he couldn't embrace Christ. That there are passages that say, unless we hate our father and our mother and our brother and our sister, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Those are hard sayings. I love my family. And yet there are times where I've got to step up and share the gospel or share my faith where they go, wait, what? We should look different in the eyes of the world. And again, not because the way we dress or anything like that. Uh, one other quick story. I remember when I was in college, uh, <laughs> I was having an argument with the president of the college about whether we should be able to wear blue jeans on Fridays. <laughs> wild conversation. Uh, man, I wish I had recordings of this stuff, you know, because like people are like, you did not. Yeah, I did. Um, we used to have these things called casual Fridays and, and we got to you, you spend a dollar and you put a sticker on your belt and you were allowed to wear, you know, blue jeans instead of khakis. Uh, and girls were allowed to wear blue jean skirts instead of khaki skirts. And, uh, <laughs> and we had this big argument. It wasn't an argument because I didn't want to get expelled from the school or anything like that. But this whole idea we were talking about, and this was his idea, that, they, you should, that, that people should be able to look at you and based on the way that you look, determine whether you're a Christian or not. And it just, it, I couldn't wrap my head around this. And I remember he said, as a quote, he said, if I walk into the lobby of my church after the service, I should be able to look at a young man based on the way he's dressed and ask him if he wants to teach Sunday school or not. What? So if I just have a nice suit and tie, like, hey, I'm qualified to preach. It doesn't make any sense, right? In his mind, though, it was all my hair is the right way. I don't have a, a beard. He was really against facial hair and tattoos and all these different things. If I look like a Christian, then I must act like one. That's not, that's not accurate. I hope you, okay, that's not it. What's my heart? Right, do, I, do I point people? Do I look different in the eyes of the world based on my values and my principles? Do I only want to seek selfish gain and money and wealth and, and power and, and prestige and reputation? Or do I set my preferences aside for the sake of others? Leadership and power are used to serve uh, one, one of my favorite books is by a gentleman named Vishal Mangalwadi. He's a, from, he's a native from, from India. And he wrote this book called The Book That Changed Your World. And that's not like a way to say his book changed the world. He's talking about the Bible. And he says, this is how scriptures have actually impacted and changed Western culture and society. And he gives all these different 
different aspects. And one of them, though, that he points out is this idea of, of power and authority or our view of heroes and superheroes. He says that in, in his culture, the people that were lifted up as powerful, that people wanted to be like, were actually the, like the warlords, were actually the people that said, I've got power and I've got so much power, you're going to be subjected under me. And he says that's very different in the Western culture because of the scriptures that have permeated that now our idea of a hero is somebody who has absolute power and then says, I'm going to actually not use my power to serve myself. I'm going to use my power to serve others. And if you think of any superhero that's ever been really written, and this is a weird picture of the DC universe versus the Marvel universe, and of course the Marvel universe would destroy the DC universe. Doesn't it's not even a it's not even not even fair. And yet when we have all these different aspects of these superheroes, I mean, just take Superman, just take Captain Marvel, how much power that they have, and what do they do? They serve these little peons of humans. Right, And he's saying this, this stems from our idea of who Jesus is. I didn't put the picture up there because it's really cheesy. Uh, and I'm trying to stay you know, culturally relevant and hip. Uh, there's this picture that was not meant to be a joke, but it's this picture of Jesus. And he's sitting down with the Hulk and Spider-Man and all these things. And it just says, and that's how I saved the world. <laughs> right? But that's, that's where this comes from. And, and this isn't just true of superheroes. This is true of each and every single one of us that we have a certain position, whether that be power, whether that be uh, a, a sphere of influence, right? I mean, I, it's, it's a, I, still culturally, and I don't know what it is, but still culturally, when I say I'm a pastor, people just, the majority, uh, have a little bit of respect. Either I get flipped off or they show me respect, right? That's, you, that's, that's only it, right? It's, there's no in-between. And yet, how do we use our positions? How do we use the work that we're doing to, to seek justice, to seek, seek righteousness, to seek the welfare of all people? And that might even making myself look less in order that someone else can be made much of because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Right? As he's talking with Spider-Man and the Hulk and he says, this is how I saved the world. He's not wrong. That you have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who created us, takes on flesh and becomes a human being and sets everything aside, his throne, his power, his position, in order to become the lowliest, to be born in a manger from, from a young virgin woman who doesn't even have a husband. And the mockery that I can't even imagine would have ensued in his entire life because of that one issue, he puts all that aside so that he can die for our sins. He can die for the sins of those of us who have flat out rejected him, have blatantly sinned in his face. That's, that's a hero. That's leadership and power that are used to serve. And when we act like that, we act like Christ and we point people to the gospel. And we've spent a lot of time talking about this, but the kingdom of God over or even against the kingdom of this world. When we look at the kingdom, that this is not about a political party, left or right, blue or red. This is the kingdom of God. And how does the kingdom of God, how, does, how do these scriptures influence me here and now? In uh, uh, Tim Keller's book, I'm going to close with this and we'll, we'll move to a gospel application. And oh, I'm going really long. I forgot we're supposed to be done by 9.45. I was like, all right, I'm going to shoot for 9.45. I apologize. I've just been rambling. Let me read these things real quick, and then we'll be done, I promise. Sorry. Uh, He says this. He gives a list of seven things specifically for the urban church. 
specifically for a church that's in a city. And again, he's, he's in New York City, very different. In case you didn't know that, New York is very different from, from St. Paul, specifically Lower Town. But he, I think these points are, are valid. He says that if we're in a, in a city, in a church that's in the city, these seven things should be true. And you can be the judge of this. Number one, respect for urban sensibility. What he meant by this is that when we think of maybe a typical suburban uh, church or, or just individual or whatever it may be, that they, they value things like privacy, space, safety, um, homogeneity, sentimentality, order, control. But within the city, it's in contrast to something that's ironic, edgy, uh, diversity-loving people with uh, maybe higher tolerance for ambiguity or, or disorder. And that's us, and we should be able to embrace that. We should respect that. Number two, unusual sensitivity to cultural differences. Number three, commitment to neighborhood and justice. Number four, integration of faith and work. Number five, bias for complex evangelism. In other words, that relationship side of things, that we're not street preaching, we're not just throwing a tract at somebody, but we want to get to know somebody and then share the gospel with them. Uh, number six, preaching that attracts and challenges. We'll move along here quickly. Seven, commitment uh, to artistry and creativity. <laughs> I mean, talk about a, a creative, artsy community. This is it. Um, and so how are, we, how are we doing this? How are we taking these four aspects of that center church, these three aspects of being biblically accurate, culturally relevant, and at the same time, a countercultural community? And so my only gospel application simply is this. Is this us? Are we, are we doing this? Now, individually, ask yourself that question. And at the same time, corporately, collectively, as a church, are we doing this? Um, and I want to do this better. And I want to do this better, not, not for us, right? This isn't to build our church, simply to hear people come to Christ. This is simply to expand the kingdom of God, first and foremost and always. Um, so are we doing that? Are we reflecting that uh, in that way? So let's, let's pray, and then we'll have a time of communion and, and worship, and then uh, we'll be dismissed. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, again, I thank you for the opportunity that we have uh, to be together, to collectively worship you. So God, I pray as we enter into a time of communion, um, this would be a time that we collectively, as a body, um, get to seek you, to remember what it is that you did for us, for your church, for your bride. And would you help us then be uh, that body, to be united in that Ephesians passage uh, with one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all, in all, and through all, that you are that God. And so would you just help us to remember that? All that you've done as we reflect through song and through prayer and reflection of our own hearts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.